Are you a numbers person? Dr. Selena Fisk believes that we all have to be. We don't have an option anymore. Numbers and data are everywhere. But if the data makes you, stops you in your tracks and makes you really nervous and you don't know how to use it, then I'm Not a Numbers Person by Dr. Selena Fisk should be your next read. This book isn't just for people that are struggling with standard deviations and graphs. It's also for people like myself that actually are pretty good with numbers but need to get better at helping them to tell the story. And that's what she does in this book. So whether you need some help with the basics of numbers or whether you've got a good track on it and just want to get better at telling the story around your data, then making I'm Not a Numbers Person by Dr. Selena Fisk your next read. All right, Dr. Selena Fisk, welcome to your next read. Now tell me, who should read this book? Well, good question, Luke. I obviously am going to say anybody. Um, people generally, if they struggle with numbers or they feel like they need a better handle on numbers, they would probably be my number one audience. But the, I guess the other way of looking at it as well is if you're a person who does have a pretty good handle on the data that you've got access to and you're starting to kind of use it, or even if you are using it pretty well, but if you're trying to lead others and they struggle with numbers, uh, then this may also be the book for you. Yeah, I, got, I kind of got that impression too, that it's, it's, it's a way of using numbers to kind of tell stories and to, to make people sort of get why they're doing what they're doing. Was that, was that what you're after? Was that your intention? Yeah, absolutely. And the work I do, I really try and be practical and solutions oriented in the work that I do when I work with organizations and with schools. So putting all of this into a book, my aim was very much about giving people some takeaways that they could go, okay, well, if I have, if I have to look at data, use data in my work, in my role, whatever it might be, um, I have at least some templates, some scaffolding, a bit of a process that I can follow to at least um, approach that process. Yeah, because there's a lot of things that you, it almost kind of like you pulled out the speed bumps that everyone has when it comes to numbers and kind of, I know I got the feeling you, my gist of it was that you, you taught us some some real skills about how to navigate those speed bumps, if you like, you know, that, that sort of looking at just your sales line and thinking, oh, we're doing really well. But if you're not making any money, then you're probably not. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's an assumption that people know how to use the data that they've got access to. Like I was working yeah. with an organization recently and in one of the breaks, a lady came to me and said, look, Selena, people keep saying to me that I need to use data to inform my practice. She said, I've got heaps of information. I know how to download all the spreadsheets. I've got no idea how to actually use that to inform what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Like basically, can you help me? So yeah, I certainly hope that the book is able to help people navigate um, some of those decisions um, and make their lives a little bit easier um, at home and at work. Yeah, you, you, well, you have a look at it too. There, there are people that are the number crunches, and I can, you know, those people that can just rattle off their numbers and know exactly what a spreadsheet does and know exactly what the what the graphs mean. And quite often, they're the ones that actually rise to the top of an organization, and they might not be the greatest leaders in the world. They might be really good at that stuff, but there might be other people that, if they could get the skills that you're teaching in this book, and it's a great book, by the way. You're, I'm not a numbers person. If some other people that perhaps have slightly different skills can actually up their numbers game, I think we might see a change in in some of the leaders, a little bit more diversity, perhaps, and a few different personalities up the up the top of the of the organisations. Yeah, absolutely. And data has traditionally been the specific role of the analysts 
uh, all the people with data in their role in the organisation. And it can't be like that anymore. And increasingly, there's an expectation that executives and senior leaders are able to engage with the data and ask really good questions of it and with it. So I kind of feel like I bridge the gap in some ways between the analysts and leaders and other employees because I don't advocate for senior leaders and all employees having the skills of an analyst because that's certainly their role and their skill set, but we need to kind of almost raise the low watermark a little bit so that we can, when we when we see visualisations, when we're given information, that we have the right questions, we can ask the right questions of the data and we can start to connect it to people and to actions. And I think that piece that you just said about, you know, you can be great at numbers and not be a great leader. Well, you know, and arguably you could be a great leader and not have a great handle on numbers. It is very much um, now about being able to merge those two things together. And great leaders who are using numbers really kind of keep that human element in the conversations, which is why data storytelling is such an important part of this process. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the ones that can do that, to be able to get those people that connect with people and all of that sort of stuff and perhaps the numbers of things holding them back, I think your book would be a great person for, for that sort of person that just yeah. doesn't really get their head around, you know, that people who aren't numbers person, I guess. I guess that's why you call it that. But it's um, I, I found that there was a lot of, like I am a numbers person. I love graphs and I love, I can look at things and say, oh, that's where it's going and you know, I was that kid that couldn't read but could do maths really well. So I kind of started reading this book and went, yeah, okay, okay. But I still got lots of things out of it as well. Even So even people who are numbers people, the, the, the way you taught us how to use numbers in storytelling for someone that is a numbers person I actually enjoyed as well. So I guess it's got a little bit in it for people even if they are numerically inclined if you like (laughs) yeah i'd like to think so and um it's interesting when they went out to pre-order a couple of um bi developers and data analysts actually bought copies of it and i was worried that it would probably not hit the mark with them but you know i got some really nice feedback from them also around there are additional concepts and kind of some ideas in there that they've got when they're working with other people so um yeah it's certainly nice to to get that feedback but hopefully there's something in there for everybody yeah well there is because you've you've kind of you've been able to bridge that sort of i have it kind of like analytical and fluffy people there's kind of people of both and I, I reckon what this book does it, it lets both of them overlap a little bit yeah it's a, I think the world needs it because we can get we can get deceived and it's it's easy to you know and you do some great examples of this with graphing and I'd, I'd love you to take us through some of the examples of that that in graphs you can see a graph one way and it like oh it does, doesn't make much difference you you change it a little bit and it mucks it up a lot um how would you you, you sort of advise people how to not get conned by numbers, if you like. Yeah, it's um, it's a good point. And even just before that question, um, you know, I think the numbers and the fluffy people or however you just described it, I think, you know, our school system, this starts from when we first go to school and we do maths and we do English and we do the fluffy wordy bit on one, you know, at one time in the day and then at another time we work with numbers. And that, that doesn't really serve the purpose of work and the world of work anymore. We actually, as you said, we need to be able to think about and merge those two things and be able to use the language and the words um, and the understanding of the storytelling with the numbers. Uh, but to your question, I guess, around some of those key things, 
to look out for and be mindful in visualizations. I guess the first thing, and we know this, is that any media organization will hand pick key pieces of data that help um, provide, I guess, a bit of evidence or proof for the story that they're telling and the side of the story that they're telling. And as you said, graphs can unfortunately be manipulated. And when they're manipulated, what we see and what the insights, I guess, appear to be can be really different. So in my book, I use the example of if you surveyed people about whether or not they preferred Coke and Pepsi um, and results were quite similar, you could skew or you could graph that so that the bars looked almost the same height. Yeah, you had but, it like 10.5 and 11.5. And like in, yeah. in one graph, you panned out and it was tiny, they were the same. And the other graph, it looked like Coke was killing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was working with an organization last week and they have box and whisker plots and they were looking at these two box and whisker plots. Now, which- now I've got to pull you up there. The box <laughs> and whisker plots. I'm, I'm going to show my ignorance here. I, yeah, and everyone who's listening, if you've seen them, they're kind of like a box, that two boxes on top of each other, and then they have these little antennas at the top and the bottom. For some reason, I thought those little antennas were like standard deviations or something like that, and I had no idea what they were, and I'd love you to explain to everyone what they are because I felt like an idiot when you when I read this and explained what they were. You're definitely not an idiot. Um, it's interesting the number of executives that are given box and whisker plots that don't know what they mean. So yeah, you are, yeah, there's a big group of you (laughs) of people who don't necessarily know them. And that's partly because we don't see them in the media. We see bar graphs, line graphs in the media, um, on the news, if we're watching, you know, if we see something about crime statistics or we see the movement of crypto, um, on TV, you know, those things, we deal with those visualizations all the time. But a box and whisker plot is a good way of visualizing the spread of results. And what it does is it, it shows you where the highest result was, the lowest result, and then the boxes. So it's split into four pieces and each of them represent 25% of the values. So hypothetically, if you were. So the whisker um, a- at the bottom is the bottom 25, the whisker at the top is the top 25, and then you've got the two middle 25s in the two boxes. Yeah, exactly. So if you were I had looking- no idea that's what that was before I read your book. I've just read it and gone, wow, I'm an idiot. I thought that was standard deviations. Yeah, right. Well, it's, um, yeah, it's just a really useful way of looking at spread. Like, so rather than looking at the average of something. So if you're a fast food chain, for example, and you wanted to look at the different turnover per month of the different restaurants or, um, mm-hmm. you know, stores in your chain. Or average store, average sale value or something like that. Yeah, the average really kind of doesn't allow you to see those really high-performing stores and the ones that are really struggling, whereas a box and whisker plot shows you the spread of everybody. So it's actually um, can be really useful, but an important thing that you need to be able to understand if you've if you've been given those visualisations. Yeah, yeah. I, I read a lot of books and I, do, I run a podcast for for, for authors and um, I always like to make sure I get something really good out of each one <laughs> and this is that was one of the many things I got you went back to before and we were talking a little bit about how you kind of can look at the numbers to try and find the things you want to buy and you want to get out of it and you talked a lot about biases can you can you run us through a few of the biases that our numbers and and our lack of you know, numeral literacy and stuff can actually uncover. Can you t- talk us through a few of those? Yeah. I mean, the data literacy part is important, like being able to understand the numbers in the first place. But the biases are a key part of 
the journey that we go on in terms of looking for insights in the data. So, for example, if I was to show you a dashboard and asked you to pick out a couple of key insights that things you notice from that dashboard, you may notice and point out different things to what I might see and point out, um, and it might be different to somebody else in your organisation. And all of that's okay because we certainly, um, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. We're not always going to see the same thing. But what we see is often influenced by by our experiences with numbers and with data, both through school and through our career. But also some of those um, unconscious biases that we come with. So things like confirmation bias means that often when we look at data, we are sometimes drawn to data that confirms what we already think or what we thought was going on. And so we kind of almost, if we're scanning it, we almost kind of latch on and hone in on that thing. And we kind of think, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And the problem with that is it doesn't, it often hijacks people's thinking and doesn't allow them to then be objective and think pretty evenly um, across all of the potential insights. Um, it kind of hijacks that thinking. There's other, um, another one is loss aversion. So, you know, we tend to not look at things um, from, a, or you tend to look at loss from a perspective of where twice as likely to focus on loss rather than gain um, when we're looking at data and when we're thinking about actions from the data. So all of those kind of biases can impact our decision-making um, and the actions that we take from it. Yeah, well, the, the loss aversion one is real. Like we've all got a negative bias. It's like it's that's, you know, caveman sort of stuff that we're designed to take more notice of the negative. But I think there's a thing about both both confirmation bias and desirability bias is that we have this tendency to once we've got the answer we want, we stop looking. Yeah. And it's a... You know, I, I think it's a real mistake because you can leave a lot of a lot of information that might actually be really useful to you on the table. And and what are some of your ways that you would actually encourage people to to sort of get over that bias and keep looking and keep being curious about what the numbers are saying? How how would you suggest that they go about doing that? Yeah, um, you know, when you were talking about confirmation confirmation bias just then, I was thinking about that. You know, that saying. You know, it was in, it was in the last place I looked. Well, yeah, it was because you stopped looking. <laughs> yeah, you stopped looking <laughs> after that. Yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I guess. It's really important when we're, when we want to be objective and want to avoid those biases that we're thinking about how we bring other people into this conversation and into the analysis. So, um, you would, like you would never want to be making decisions or taking action based on one data set. I would never encourage, you know, organizational or team decisions and actions to be decided on by one person. So being able to get multiple brains in a room looking at a particular area of inquiry and having an open conversation about, well, what are the things that you see? What are the insights that you get from this information? And having a conversation about those things and I guess the ones that most of you, there's a general consensus um, on. The other thing to think about is thinking slowly um, we, Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm sure many of your listeners have read it. Yeah, it's uh, a great book. Yeah, and he talks about system one thinking being that really quick and automatic thinking, and we use that about 98% of the time. The problem with that is that in data analysis and looking for insights, that's not hugely helpful. We actually want to use system two thinking, which is slow and deliberate and allows us to really find those things that we may not have immediately jumped to straight away. Uh, so finding the time and space to do that is one way to do it. 
um, and encouraging your team members to think slowly. But another way, and I and I use this example in the book for actions, but you can also do it for insights, giving people some scaffolding or framework around I want you to go and find three insights from this or I want you to come back with six questions that you've got about this data and require them to fill the gaps, if you like. Yeah, and the right. exercise- That stops that confirmation bias too, doesn't it? That it just gets you sort of thinking, okay, mm. I have to look at both sides of this. Yeah, and, and often our system one thinking means that we latch on to the stuff quite quickly, but I use a three-by-three three matrix where people can put actions into the matrix, and you can do that with, with the insights as well. Because we we can fill the first few boxes pretty quickly, um, but we struggle to get to nine. So that really encourages the system two thinking because system one brain goes, okay, I see this, 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 and this, bang. I'm black um, or white, I'm done, next. Yep, but if you say to people, no, I want you to come up with nine things or however many it is, they're not going to get there straight away. Um, so that encourages people to think about that system two thinking and start to think, well, if somebody else looked at this dashboard, what might they see? Um, or what's something that somebody else would notice that they would tell me about? Um, so trying to think about it from other people's perspectives to fill up, you know, that those that box example. Yeah, I, I, I call that old brain and new brain thinking. We've kind of got that rapid, just does it really quickly, and then we've got our thoughtful prefrontal cortex part that comes onto that, and it's... Yeah, I guess the numbers it can it can stimulate that that old brain. Yes, I'm gonna I like that. I'm gonna take it. Let's just let's confirm that, or let's let's jump to our our sort of desirability bias. But it, it often doesn't help, doesn't it? Another one no, you no. talked about was was fundamental aversion error. Can you tell can you tell us what that attribution error? Sorry, can you tell us what that's about? Um, so fundamental attribution error is where we attribute the wrong thing or personal characteristics to what we see. So sometimes it it might be that when we do something wrong or we see a a, a piece of data, I guess, that reflects poorly on our team, then we we often think about the external factors that have contributed and explain away, if you like, the insights in that in that way. When we see a piece of data that reflects somebody else's work, we often attach that to their the characteristics of that person, of that human, rather than take into consideration those um, fact, those external factors that we've kind of been able to do for ourselves. Yeah, you so, use the example of people cutting you off in traffic. Yeah. And, and someone cuts you off in traffic and you say, oh, you're an asshole, you've just cut me off in traffic. You know, that person yeah. might have a sick kid in the back of the car and they might actually be in a hurry to get them to the hospital or something. You don't know. But we're attributing yeah. something to them from one little piece of data. Yeah. Without knowing the whole lot. And I guess that's a really easy thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. And and if we're the one that does the cutting off, you know, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm really like, didn't mean to do that. Or I didn't realize the lane yeah. was ending, whatever it might be. Um, and we don't necessarily offer the same kind of grace to other people. So, And it kind yeah. of overlaps a little bit. when Similar sort of thing when we look at the difference between causation and correlation. Can, mm. can, you, can you take people through that? Because I know that confuses a lot of people. Yeah, it confuses a lot of people because I think a lot um, a lot of the time people assume causation. They assume that one thing causes another. Um, and when we to get to causation, it actually has to be, you know, rigorously, scientifically, empirically researched. Um, Double blind studies and placebo yeah. control studies and all of that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, so we know, for example, that um, smoking can lead to or can contribute to heart disease. Um, You know, there's a lot of kind of scientific things that we know where one thing causes another. Uh, But we can't necessarily make the same assumptions just because we're seeing a trend in the data in our organisation. So more often than not, what we're seeing is a correlation. So there's a relationship between two things. So, you know, there, there might be a correlation between sales in a month Um, You might see that as one thing is improving or increasing, another thing is decreasing or dropping off. Now, you can make a correlation. So there's a correlation. There's a relationship between those two things. But it would be erroneous to assume that because one thing is happening, it is causing the other thing to happen. Um, And you don't know that for sure until you go and ask the questions, you do a bit more digging. Um, And as I say, true causation is actually kind of scientifically backed so it's funny there's a um there's a there's a lot of different funny correlations available online and you can google some funny ones and you'll find there's hundreds if not thousands of them and one well it's probably not funny but one is the number of Nicolas Cage movies in a year um, versus the number of drownings that happen in swimming pools and there's a (laughs) correlation between those two things they move in a similar way there um, could be a causation there some of his movies are really bad and you might want to just drown yourself so that, that, there might be a mild causation in that as well. There's definitely no causation between Nicolas Cage movies and drownings. So, yeah, definitely just a correlation. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? And you, one of the ones, and I don't think you, you talked about it in the book, but sometimes we think we haven't got enough data to actually make the point. And one, one that I thought of a lot when I was reading this book was the Enron case. And one other thing about the Enron case where the – you know, massive company in the States and went bust. And basically they just dumped every bit of data they had everywhere, confused the hell out of any, anyone and had this really crappy accounting system and a multi-billion dollar company went broke because they made the numbers so complicated that no one could actually, you know, get their teeth around them. And I guess you can do it both ways, can't you? You can tell the story and and make the numbers tell a good story or you can just dump a whole bunch of them off and assume that no one can can actually tell the story from that. Yeah, and almost drown people in, you know, like analysis paralysis or too much information. Um, and I, I don't know too much about the Enron example, but that's a lot of organisations that I work with, they're saying to me, like, we've got so much data, there's so much information available to us. Um the information that they've got is actually like, or having enough information is not the challenge. They've got too much and it's not necessarily being used to lead and inform action and change in, in their organisation. So it very much is the organisation's responsibility to make some decisions about, okay, well, we collect all of this data. There's thousands of different data points. There's a whole stack of different sets. What do we actually care about and value? And you're almost, the organisation itself almost needs to be a bit, a bit of a filter down from this is everything we've got available, we're filtering down into, okay, we're saying that these are the things we care about and we want our employees to value. And then filtering down even further, um, if we're able to articulate 
and clarify what our expectations are for different teams in our organisations, what data we want them to pay attention to, how we want them to use it, what actions could potentially um, come about as a result of doing the analysis. I think the clearer we can be with employees in this space, the better, um, because, you know, otherwise I think we end up going back to that example of somebody saying, I meant to be using data to inform what I do. Um, I'm not actually sure what that means. And organizations more broadly but but leaders have a key responsibility in making that very clear and being that funnel for their staff so tell me about data plans how how do organizations use them yeah so i guess that's one way that i'm seeing increasingly organizations funnel um, that information down for staff. So it really starts with the organisation or the leaders or the team leaders, um, whatever, I guess, whoever's producing the plan, having a think about, well, what's everything that we've got available to us? What are all of those data sets? And then making a decision for their staff around what they want them to use. Data plans um, usually include kind of two key parts, not just the this is the data we want you to use and look at and this is how often. That's more of a schedule and that's kind of useful. But, again, if somebody doesn't have any idea how to actually use the data, um, we want to help them along that process or um, in that process. So a good data plan actually has kind of two separate columns, one for what is some of that potential analysis that they could be doing or what are some possible things to be looking for or insights they might be trying to find. And then the following column might be um, some suggested or expected ways that that could be used to inform the work that they're doing in subsequent week or month or quarter um, or whatever it might be. Data plans are best when they also have different sections for different groups. So you might have your C-suite senior executive leaders and you might have a data plan for them about a particular element of your business and you might have then, say, your sales team and you would have a section of the data plan for the sales team. You might have your marketing team, um, you know, that whatever teams you've got in your organisation, they will all use data in different ways and potentially even some data sets. Um, and as I said, it's it's up to leaders to really be able to articulate that for their staff. Yeah, right. I guess one of the things that does is to be able to do that well, you sort of stop the silos. Everyone gets the information that they need for everywhere else, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And then they can also see the interrelationship between them because a lot of organisations actually do have data sitting in silos and sitting pretty separate from, from one another. But actually, we, you know, it, it's worth going through that process of kind of thinking, well, what actually matters to us? And if, if there is some data that's useful or potentially useful and you don't have access to it, then that's a writing the plan and going through that process is a really good way to start the conversation about, well, how do we actually make this data more accessible or accessible to the people who would benefit from having um, access to it? Yeah, that makes sense too because one of the things you talk about in, it, in the book as well is being data-informed as opposed to data-driven. And um, I'd love you to sort of t take us through that differentiation of what the two of those mean because I, I think that means a lot in that same context. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the language in this um, is kind of getting real traction, I feel, um, you know, outside this book. But more broadly, I think people are generally coming around to the fact that we need to be informed by the data and not driven by it. Um, I often use the analogy of, uh, you know, racehorses, sometimes they wear blinkers and the blinkers, the idea of the blinkers is that they shield 
the um, distractions that are happening around them. And so when they turn around the corner and they're running towards the, you know, down the final straight, they're focused on the finish line. But we also know that the place that a horse finishes in a race is completely dependent on that context, on everything that's happening around them. So I kind of use that analogy for a data-driven organisation. It's almost like they've got their blinkers on and they're not paying attention to the context. When we're informed by the data, though, the blinkers are off. So that means that we're using the numbers, we're paying attention to the quantitative and qualitative data that we've got access to, but we're also taking into consideration the contextual factors and features that sit around them. So it might be the turnover in a, in a particular team. It might be um, an increase or decrease in sales that's happening. It might be what's happening in the economy more broadly. Uh, it could be to do with the time of the year. Whatever is potentially influencing those decisions um, or I guess, influencing the numbers, we need to take into consideration when we're thinking about the actions. So it should never just be the number says this, therefore we have to do this. Um, It's always got to be, here's the numbers, what else do we know and what are some potentially impactful strategies knowing all of those things, um, including the context. Yeah, it's a great analogy because one of the, they, they put the blinkers on the horse because the horse is agitated and too distracted. And yeah. I guess I guess some people aren't comfortable with all the other parts of their business. If I can just stay in my lane and just worry about the numbers, then I'm okay. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'm I'm, I'm sure it's it's useful until it's not. Yeah, and um, I think most of the time it's probably not pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's also knowing the strengths of your team. You know, you could see that something's a problem or something needs to be addressed. But even taking into consideration the strengths and gaps in terms of the human resources in your team, um, so the actions that you take might then be around trying to build their skill and upskill them before they can start to lead the change, rather than kind of saying, "Okay, well, these are the people in that role, and therefore this is the thing that they've got to do." Um, but we know that if they're if they're not ready, if they don't have the capacity to do that or lead that action, they're potentially it's going to fall flat anyway. So it's actually beneficial to take that context into consideration um, yeah. when we're thinking about what our actions are going to be. Yeah, so the, you know, the blinkers aren't really going to help in the long term. It might stop you being agitated for a minute, but that's not really going to help. Yeah. But it's, it's a great book. I actually, I'm, I was surprised because I, I looked at it and, and thought, oh, you know, I'm pretty good with numbers. This is going to be all right. But I actually got a lot out of it, which is great. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and it, did, it, did bring the num- it did teach you to bring the numbers alive a little bit better. And I, I think that's, it's probably not why someone would pick it up but it's a really good benefit for someone who does. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, a key, you know, two of the chapters in it really focus on that idea of data storytelling. So mm. there's, a, you know, my, my three big things are data literacy, data visualization, and data storytelling. And that's got to be the end goal, right? Like you can have really good data literacy. You can be able to produce the best uh, graphs and box and whisker plots if you really want to and all those amazing visuals. Um, but none of that is actually going to lead positive change in your organisation until you get to the point of data storytelling. And that's where we've got people in the conversations. You know, all of this data is generally being created from and by humans. Um, it's got to be used by and for humans um, yeah. at the other end of it. So, yeah, we always need to make sure we've got the, we keep the human element um, whenever we're talking about data. We do. So the book is I'm Not a Numbers Person. And even if you are a numbers person, I still think it's worth having a read of this one because it's pretty good. Um, Selena, we always finish with a little fast five. And 
I've been remiss because I actually haven't given you any warning for this. So you're, you're going to have to think on your toes here. Um, what are you reading now? Which is a pretty easy question. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm reading Noise by Daniel Kahneman. I love it's him. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it, really good. And hard. Confirmation bias is important and valid, but also that we shouldn't ever under, underestimate the amount of noise that's in decision-making as well. And for me, the noise in data sets and data that we've got is extraordinarily high. So, yeah, it's um, hitting the nail on the head for me. Yeah, noise is everywhere too. Um, I've just I've just finished Stolen Focus by Johan Hari and that was all about distractions and stuff like that. And, yeah, there is a lot of noise about. Um, what was your most memorable book as a kid? Oh, that's a very good question. I wasn't probably a kid, but... <laughs> that's all right. You're not like, you don't have to be ashamed by that. It's okay. I, think I was 18 and I loved Harry Potter. <laughs> okay. What book should everyone read other than yours? Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Absolutely. And um, think that's again. That's a beast but- of a book, though. Um, I actually took a couple of goes to have a that, go at that book. I, yeah. I tried it about three or four years ago, and I felt I needed a, a baseline of knowledge before I could actually mm-hmm. get it properly. If that makes sense, I think I I, I think I just needed to be smarter because <laughs> um, it's it's a hard book. Mm. I actually listened to it on an audio book. And that's how I consume most of my book content. So um, it's good because you can kind of pause it and take a break and you can take yeah. notes and that sort of thing. So, Other than thinking fast and slow, has there been a sort of self-help book or a business book that's had a big influence on you? Um, most recently, I mean, all of Brené Brown's work I absolutely love and cannot get enough of. Have you, have you read Atlas of the Heart? Yes, so good. The audio book of that is amazing. For anyone who hasn't read Atlas of the Heart, she goes through 87 emotions and talks about how these emotions work. And there's actually a HBO series you can you can stream online as well. But I'm a bit of a fanboy of Brené. Yeah, I love in the book, in the audio book of Atlas of the Heart, um, she actually stops and repeats herself. Like, mm, And she's like, guys, this is real. <laughs> you need to listen to this. You need to get this sentence. And then she yeah. reads it again. Brilliant. I'm in the um, process of, of doing the audio book for my new book that's coming out next month. And um, I'm going to do the same thing because it really does, it's really quite impactful. It works really well. Absolutely. The other one that I love so much at the moment, and it's to do with the thinking frames, um, similar in some ways to Daniel Kahneman's work, but thinking um, fast, sorry, think again by Adam Grant. So the idea that we all think in generally one of three ways, like a politician, a prosecutor or a preacher, Mm. um, but actually we need to more so try and think like scientists where we have conviction in what we believe, um, but we hold those beliefs pretty lightly um, and are open and willing to take on new information and new evidence as it emerges. So um, great for data people, but also more broadly, great for anybody, I reckon. I think any, both Brené and Adam Grant, anything either of those two write is, yeah. is generally pretty exceptional, isn't it? But Think Again, Think Again was probably my favourite book last year, I reckon. It was, mm. um, yeah, it was a great read. The Phil Tetlock stuff about the preacher, prosecutor and and politician politician. yeah Yeah, that that was that was really cool all right last a little bit personal um what would your autobiography be called oh gosh she didn't adult well (laughs) (laughs) i think you're adulting just fine selena i think you're doing a great job congratulations on a really good book thank you i'm not i'm not a numbers person it's a great read even if you are a numbers person and uh, yeah so if anyone does struggle with numbers and and has those people skills but wants to be able to put some numbers and some framework around it this is definitely a book for you so um congratulations and thank you for coming on your next read awesome thanks so much luke great chatting with you cheers thank you for listening to your next read 
I'm Luke Mathers, and if you'd like to make I'm Not a Numbers Person by Selena Fisk your next read, go to majorstreet.com.au and use the code YNR to claim your discount. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.